This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condes Presley. You know the phrase, better late than never. Well, for readers of a series of stories, novels about the Reverend Curtis Black, they would rather hear not late, not never, because Better Late Than Never is the newest novel by a frequent guest on our program, the author Kimberly Lawson Roby. It is the last in the series of stories in the Reverend Curtis Black series. And as I said, that's probably something most folks did not want to hear. And Kimberla is with us today on the program. I know you just came over from doing some some TV with some friends. Why are you ending the story? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much, Condice, for having me. And you're asking me the question I've been getting every night on the tour and through social media networks and by email. And I think some readers don't even believe that it's true. Yeah, um, you're running the okie doke on yeah, everybody. There yeah. is another book after this one, right? You're going to go ahead and break that news for us today. <laughs> it's like, no, you know, this is it. 15th and final title in the series. And for a long time, um, I've known that it would come to an end. And from the very beginning, my goal was to bring Curtis full circle. Of course, he was a awful, awful man and uh, hurt lots of people and was very deceptive and he betrayed one person after another. And so I just wanted to eventually show that even the worst of people, any of us who may be doing anything wrong, that we can turn around our lives. We can change for the better if we choose to. And so he's that person now. So Better Late Than Never, the title of the book refers perhaps to the redemption of the title character. Exactly, exactly. So for the audience, everybody, Kimberla Lawson Roby is a New York Times bestselling author. We are talking about her highly acclaimed Reverend Curtis Black series. Her novels deal with very real issues, including corruption within the church, sexual abuse, mental, is, mental illness, and sexual harassment. She has sold, talk about success, more than 2.7 million copies of her novels. They're frequently numerous bestsellers on the New York Times, USA Today, the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Essence Magazine. And I think about your books, and we've been talking about uh, the Reverend Curtis Black for a number of years. And now I guess you want, maybe you needed to finish it because we're watching some of this now on OWN with Greenleaf. Yeah. Do you get those comparisons from readers? Yeah. Every now and then, and um, but I have even had readers uh, tag me and Oprah at the same time and said, wow, I wonder if Oprah's seen the Reverend Curtis Black series. And so, yeah, you, you hear that and get the comparisons. I've never really gotten a chance to watch it. Um, so I think it's different in a lot of respects as well. And so, you know, we'll see. But now the rights have been optioned for my Reverend Curtis Black series. So, you know. Oh, now there's the news you've got yeah, for us. Go ahead, tell us more. Yeah, so hoping to find a home um, for that. Um, there's a company called Real World Management in Los Angeles, film and production company, TV production company. And so I uh, was speaking with the president of that company on and off for the last few months, and I passed on other offers, a number of them, but she really seemed to get the vision. Of course, things will have to change to get it into TV format, and I understand that, and I'm fine with that, but I certainly don't want the script um, weekly to veer so far away from what readers are used to that they're going to have a problem with it. And, you know, for 18 years, a lot of them have been reading it, and I just want to straight, stay true to the storyline. So reset for the audience who this character is 
and why he has consumed your writing for for 18 years. Yes. So he started out um, in a small church uh, in, interestingly enough, Atlanta, Georgia, and he has about 300 members and he's graduated with his master's degree. The woman that he is asking to marry him, she's just graduated, Tanya. And so life is good and they have their first child and he's a wonderful man of God. He's a great husband. It is when they moved to Chicago, Illinois, and he now has been hired into a church that has 3,000 members that everything changes. And so it is about how much more money can I earn and it's about the greed and it's about sleeping with different women. And so, of course, as that story continues, his wife is questioning him. She has a problem with it. And eventually it doesn't work out very well. And he's ousted from the church and um, she divorces him. He moves on to another church, church, another wife. He eventually moves on to another church and another wife. This this time he starts his own church, though, um, and in his words, so that he can never be kicked out of a church ever again. And um, this time he meets his match, though. Charlotte is 15 years younger, and she's now doing to him 10 times more than what he did to the first two wives. And so the story has continued, but then the children eventually grew up. And, you know, that old cliche, um, as those children became adults, you realize that the apple really does not fall that far from the tree. And so they had their issues. And so now today, in Better Late Than Never, he is reunited with his sister that he's been estranged from pretty much since he left for college and only to now find that she's terminally ill. And so they, of course, go back and they are reconnecting and trying to catch up on all the years that they've lost in the little bit of time that they have left to do so. And now Curtis is having to face all of those childhood memories that he repressed and walked away from. And so his father was a chronic alcoholic. Um, he abused Curtis all the time. And so you see his vivid memories of that this time around. And it certainly won't justify him becoming the terrible person he became in, in his adult life, but it'll give you some idea why he grew up thinking, if I ever get out of the situation, I'm going to have great things and I'm going to do all that I want to do, no matter what I have to do to get them. So... Where did you originally find the idea, the motivation, the inspiration for this character who has had such a remarkable story arc over these series of novels? So when I wrote my first two books, Behind Closed Doors and Here and Now, standalone titles had nothing to do with the church um, or a pastor. I was writing about real life issues. And based on my comments from readers, I knew that I wanted to continue writing about real life issues, even though I was writing in a fictional format. So I said to my husband, well, you know, I really want to continue that. But this time I want it to be a topic that everyone will know about. They will have heard about it or experienced it. And so he was the person who said, you know what, what about a lot of the issues that tend to go on in churches. And so I thought about that, especially having been in church my entire life and realized I'd seen a lot and heard a lot, unfortunately, throughout my childhood, even into the teen years and in my 20s. And um, so from there, Curtis Black was born. And so I think he likely was as bad as he was is because he's a mixture of many men that I've known about over the years. There is a great amount of content now in books, on television, in film that deal with the humanity of men in the church. Mm -hmm. This is something you said you were aware of and knew about growing up in the church. The thought comes to my mind, they're not God, they are men and yes. attempt to be godly men. Yes. And with Curtis Black, epic fail. Oh, total. What told you that there was such a treasure trove of ideas and ways to deal with story and contemporary issues by setting Curtis Black's story in the black church? Well, I think it goes back to what you just said. So, of course, you know, this is a, a human being, you know, for one thing. 
Curtis is certainly capable of doing the wrong thing and committing sins, the, you know, the same as the rest of us. And so my hope has always been that I would be able to write about all sorts of real life issues, um, some of the hard topics, even the controversial ones, the taboo ones. But it just so happens to be that we're talking about a pastor and his wife and his family and a congregation. My hope has been that readers would walk away saying, okay, instead of placing so much focus and even praising another human being standing in the pulpit, I need to focus on my own relationship with God, making sure that that's intact. And yes, I need to read the word for myself and, you know, just treat people the way that I want to be treated. But I think many times people do praise the pastor and they're looking to the pastor. So then when he does disappoint them, it's really, really heartbreaking. And many times I've heard members of churches say, that's why I'm never going to church again. And I always think, well, how unfortunate um, that has to be. What's been the feedback thus far? We're not going to spoil anything because mm-hmm. we know that Better Late Than Never is is the last in the series. But as as we readers have gone through and found the redemption of the Reverend Curtis Black in this book, uh, how are folks feeling about that? Um, it, the feedback has been wonderful. I've been looking at some of the reviews online. I've been getting direct emails and seeing social media comments and um, have been hearing what I always hoped and prayed I would hear is that, you know, what a way to end the series or the series has ended on a great note. And this time around, I've heard a lot of my readers say there were lots of tears. So, hmm. yeah. Have you found that the story, as you said, some people say, yes, the hypocrisy and and all of the bad things that can go on in the church and in any church, really, whether mm-hmm. without uh, any regard to race or ethnicity, because there's just where, where men and women and people are involved, there can be problems. There's, yes. If you're looking for a perfect church, my pastor says you're not going to find one because Never. there is no perfect church. No. There are no perfect people. So exactly. how do you help your readers reconcile all of the drama that you've been able to put into this story with how they how we deal with everyday life. Yeah, And, you know, so that's the thing is, you know, just really, again, um, you know, if you are a Christian, you know, making sure that you have your own personal relationship with God intact and, you know, focus on just doing the right thing. I have always just believed that if we treat others the way we want to be treated, just living by the golden rule, if you'll pull that just one piece, that one passage out of the Bible, the world would be an entirely better place to live in. And so I'm, I'm hoping that I've shown that throughout the series that even the worst person, um, there can be redemption and there should always be forgiveness, even though it is sometimes to forgive people who have hurt you. What has been the best thing for you in creating this character and the surrounding characters in the series of stories you've told? I think it has just been the connection that it has allowed me to have with my readers. Um, With my first two books, I certainly had an audience. My readers supported me. The book went on to sell based on word of mouth. And so I was always grateful for my readers telling another reader about it. But when Curtis Black came along and, and casting the first stone, and then I continued on with the Reverend Curtis Black series, then I really seemed to build a relationship with readers and I was able to do it one reader at a time one book club at a time and just hearing the conversations and the discussion and people coming out to events nationwide sharing their own personal stories about the church and and what it had been like for them remind our readers how you became this author 
So I started out, um, didn't write the first book until I was 30 years old and uh, wasn't a lifelong dream. I always thought that I wanted to be maybe a writer in some kind of way, maybe do something with journalism, but never thought I would write books, um, not novels and, you know, do anything that related to fiction. But after working in corporate America, I had majored in um, business administration uh, worked for the state of Illinois as well, and then eventually worked for the city of Rockford, Illinois, as a financial analyst in community development. But just always doing something along the lines of business, I always felt like something was missing, and there there was this void even. And so I started thinking back to teachers as early as elementary school who said, you have a gift for writing. You have a gift for storytelling and how I had ignored that. I just hadn't paid a lot of attention to those comments. And I didn't think I was doing anything more than any other student who was just looking to turn in their assignment and hopefully get an A on it. And uh, same thing in in journalism. Um, But I did write for my school newspaper in in junior high school and um, went on from there, heard the same thing from uh, my English teachers and just teachers of other subjects, even in high school. And I thought, well, maybe I'll give this a try. And so started writing every evening and weekend and holiday. That was in 1995 and uh, finished the book at the end of seven months, went on to submit to a number of literary agents, was rejected by every last one of them. So, you know, didn't turn out quite the way I was hoping. Uh, submit it directly to publishers who really want you to have an agent. They don't prefer to receive your manuscript unsolicited, but I felt like I didn't have anything to lose. So Submitted it to them and, again, was rejected, Uh, was ready to give up, moved on, started applying to MBA programs, was accepted to two of them, registered uh, for the first class with the program that I chose. And my mom saw that I was serious about giving up on trying to get my book published. And she said, I just don't think you should do that. I don't know anything about publishing, but I do know readers here locally are reading your manuscript and saying that they've enjoyed it. And she said, I just think that means something and you shouldn't give up. And then finally, it was my husband, Will, who said, why can't you take your background in business, start your own company and publish the book yourself? And so that's how self-publishing happened. Tell me about some of those rejections you received. How is that? How do, how do publishers tell you no? And mm-hmm. then how did you receive that again and again and again? And that's the thing. So even with literary agents, some of them, I, I mean, you have to know their form letters. You know, maybe they looked at it and it just wasn't for them, and so they sent you a form letter, and and that was it. Um, in some cases, uh, they may have said, well. You send the query letter. Can you send me three or four chapters? You send it and then you still get rejected and say, "Mm, you know, this wasn't what I thought it was. You know, I think, you know, at some point you'll do well, but this isn't for me. You know, so no, that's that's the bottom line. The answer is no. Um, Then there was one editor at a major publishing house, though, that that probably was the most encouraging for me. And she said, you know, I can see the talent and terms of writing and rendering interesting characters and storylines, but it's very hard to get the entire publishing house on board. It's hard to get them behind an author uh, such as yourself who doesn't have any writing credits because at the time I had not written for magazines, um, no articles there. I hadn't written for newspapers. I had started out with just writing a book, and so there was no real credibility um, for her to get the house to take a chance on it. But it still was encouraging to me that she took to took the time to write me an actual letter and say, I see that you have talent. And um, so that was enough to, to keep going until I kept getting the rejection letters. And I thought, okay, enough is enough. But your success, though, as they say, has been quite honestly the best revenge. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's 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 been great. And, you know, I look back and even when I was afraid to self-publish and I said to uh, my husband, Will, but what if this doesn't work? Because he was borrowing money from his 401k account. We were going to have to take out a personal loan from our credit union and our personal you know, money was going to have to be involved. And he just believed in me at that time when I didn't necessarily believe in myself. And he said, well, you know, well, if it doesn't work, you know, you'll just move on to something else. But do you want to go even 10 years still wondering if you could have been successful with it? And then, of course, he was the person who, when the books came back and we had an opening reception at home, said, so you know you're going to have to give your two-week notice. And I thought, okay, the man has really lost his mind now. You know, he's going too far with this. And I couldn't imagine what we were going to do with just one income. And um, But he just didn't believe I could be successful if I didn't give the writing and the publishing 100% of my time. So I did go to work and I gave my two week notice and that was 96. So almost 26, 22 years ago, it will be, um, in November. That's a real story of stepping out on faith. Yes, absolutely. So at what point did you have your pick of the litter of, of publishing houses, uh, to, to do your work or did you continue to, to publish via your own company? No, I did. I only actually self-published the first book. That's so what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it started to do well. And, and I will say for any of your listeners um, who are aspiring writers is that it did help. I didn't realize that, but it did help that my background was in business because that is so much of what you're going to need to do and and know if you're going to self-publish a book. The writing is art and that's great and that's wonderful, but you need to know how to get your book into the hands of of your readers. And so, you know, just kind of moving forward with that and, and thinking back just to all of it, you know, never imagined, I guess, that I would write this many books. I don't think I thought that. I was hoping to write at least another one, you know, maybe a third one. Um, so yeah, it's it's so been here a journey. we are at fifteen with yeah. this one character. Yeah, there. just with the one character and twenty seven total. So what do ministers tell you about the book and 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 first ladies of the church yes. tell you about the series and and what they what their takeaway is from the stories you tell. So it's always been interesting because early on when we started traveling around on tour forecasting the first stone, I was afraid of what the backlash might be and hadn't thought about it before the tour. But I thought, oh, you know, who's going to ask me why I'm basically airing the dirty laundry of the church? Why am I even talking about this, even though we know that it exists? And that just didn't happen. And what did happen was pastors' wives were quietly saying to me, thank you writing my story. Thank you for saying what I'm not able to say. And our members may see us on Sunday morning and maybe we're smiling, but they have no idea what we're dealing with the other six days in the weekend. Now, of course, sometimes I'm hearing from pastor's wives saying, you know, people are brushing by me just to get to my husband. So they're really a non-entity to a lot of people in the congregation. That's just wrong. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Because the it's a, the couple that shepherds the church. Yes. That's why you have the pastor, and the first lady who ministered to the entire congregation. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, thankfully there have been lots of pastors' wives and um, their husbands, the senior pastors of churches that have allowed me and invited me to come into their churches to speak to their women's ministry. And, of course, that means that those are pastors who are not like Reverend Curtis Black, and they just believe, okay, it's time we expose this and and make people aware of who their leaders might in fact be. Do you think that— your work, though fictional, but based upon experiences and people that you've known, has improved the quality of service 
of the leaders of many of our churches. You know, I think so. And that, that's always been my hope. You can never say for sure. But I did have a pastor years ago say that he uh, was told about my book. He read it and he had a secretary order copies for all of his pastor friends and he shipped them to them. And his reasoning was because he said, you know, this really could be great required reading for young men young ministers who are entering the seminary because if they read casting the first stone they will see just what's going to happen to them if they don't do the right thing they don't lead god's people the way that he expects them to because there's no guarantee no that at the end you'll end up where you think you're going to be that's exactly right so tell us about the day when you finished better late than never and you <gasps> you literally last chapter close mm-hmm. the book and the story is complete. How was that for you? It was it was a tough book to write. Probably when I look back over all of the books, it was the toughest of the 15 in the series. And I think it was because it was the end, but it was also that tension and the stress of, will it be good enough? You know, will readers say, oh my gosh, this is the ending and it wasn't worth it. So that was my fear. I was, I was really terrified of that. And so that made me a little hesitant. And it took me a lot longer to finish this book than than probably any book that I've written, even with the standalone titles. And um, that was the reasoning. But when I finally finished it, it was like, good. I mean, and I shed some tears along the way. I haven't done that a whole lot um, with the books that I've written. But I'm happy that I was able to end it the way that I always wanted to end it and just happy for the journey. And my hope had always been to end it when readers were still saying, Kimberla, can you read, please just write one more. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you just need a break. Maybe you're just a little tired, but a few years from now you'll write another one. That was my hope versus hearing them say, you should have ended this a long time ago. So, And that's what um, you're getting. I know yeah. Shonda Rhimes said that when she started Scandal, when she wrote the first script, she knew how the story was going to end. Mm-hmm. Was that your experience here? Yes, yes. And there were a few things that were a little bit of a surprise to me that I incorporated in the storyline and, and just for each of them, for Charlotte and her storyline and Curtis and their 12-year-old daughter, Curtina, who's the youngest, but she's giving them more problems than all of the other children did um, put together when they were at that same age. Um, but Curtis and the idea of redemption and turning his life around for good and being genuine about it, that was always what I wanted to see. Is it possible that there's a new series to be told out of one of the characters that's not Curtis Black in this series of novels? No, probably not. You know, I guess never say never, but, you know, it's not my plan to create another series. And my next book um, will likely be that you see will be nonfiction and then after that, for fiction, it would be standalones, yeah, just individual titles. So you've got, I guess, notebooks and st- post-it notes and things all over the place with ideas about things that you'd like to write yes. now that you've got this out of your system. Yes, I do. And I've had those for a while. And some of those I have incorporated in the series. And then, of course, you know, I've done two books a year for a while, so I've always been able uh, to incorporate them into the standalone titles. But now... I just feel like, you know, it's a free-for-all. I could really choose one and just create all brand new everything around it. It's got to be exciting and very Mm -hmm. liberating. What do you want readers to take away from Better Late Than Never? And for those who have not started the series, and we go back to casting the first stone, what is the overarching thing that you want 
readers to take away from this one particular story. So with uh, Better Late Than Never, with Curtis uh, being estranged from his sister and only sibling for all these years, um, simply because he wanted to forget about the awful life and childhood he had, not because he had a problem with his sister, but that was his way of dealing with it. Um, He never even saw his mother again after he left for college until he saw her in her casket when she passed away. So my hope is that with this, if readers are reading and they're holding a grudge with any family member, if they're not speaking to any family member, that they will wake up and say, it's just not worth it. And that, yes, we hear all the time that life is too short, but it really is. Um, So correct that, you know, forgive when you need to forgive, reconnect with your family members, love them, spend time with them for the time that you have. Any idea when we're going to be able to see this story uh, on television? I know you said earlier in the, in our conversation that it, it has been options. Is there a timeline for that yet? Mm-hmm. No, not a timeline. So I know the first thing uh, that the producer is looking for is, of course, to find our perfect Curtis, you know, hopefully. Um, she's looking for a great showrunner uh, as well as a, a lead script writer. And so, so that will not be you. No, no, We'll just no. take EP, executive producer. Yes, she has been gracious enough to allow me to EP, so executive produce. All right, then. Well, congratulations. This book is Better Late Than Never. The author, Kimberla Lawson Roby, the last number 15 in the story of the Reverend Curtis Black. Nice. Thanks so much. Good to see oh, you. Thank you so much, Candace. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.